One way to conquer your fears about what could happen when you travel in certain countries is to actually join the crowds on the bus, the train, or the ferry. Once I totally surrendered to the dirt, there was nothing you could do about it. I totally surrendered to the heat. And I just spent hours with my feet hanging out of the doorway, um, people giving me sweet tea and cold beers. Carl Hoffman set off to explore the most rickety and notorious modes of mass transit around the world. And he did that just to experience how the majority of people on our planet actually get from town to town. He came home with some great stories. And besides surviving unscathed to write his book, The Lunatic Express, Carl tells us why he'd do it all over again. The best times in life are when you take the back alleys and Mm -hmm. side roads and disregard the guidebook. Carl Hoffman explains what third world transit is really like. And later in the hour, listeners share their own travel discoveries and tips. Fasten your seatbelt if you can find it. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're finding out just how dangerous the world's most crowded and run-down buses, trains, and ferries are, and hearing about your own travels to exotic lands far from home. It's coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travelers seem to um, notice the little articles in page 10 of a newspaper that says, Indonesian ferry sinks. 300 people drowned. Peruvian bus plunges off cliff. Kenyan train attacked by mobs. Well, whenever he picks up a newspaper, Carl Hoffman notices these. He was struck by how far removed from the idea of tourism that this kind of reality travel is. For most people, travel is not going to some beach and laying around. Travel is the reality of their daily existence, their grind, and they have to travel in a way that is oftentimes quite dangerous. So Carl Hoffman took off and and spent five months circumnavigating the globe using the world's most dangerous conveyances. Uh, Statistically, the most dangerous airlines, the most crowded ferries, the slowest buses, the deadliest trains, all in order to better understand what travel means to the vast majority of people on this planet. Carl Hoffman dubbed himself a lunatic, and his journey is called The Lunatic Express, and he wrote a great book describing his experience. Carl Hoffman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Did I explain your experience correctly there? That was perfect. (laughs) I just think it's the cleverest idea. A lot of us who have traveled have spent a lot of time in horrendously crowded cattle car trains on Java or going on a bus across the border of Nepal or all of a sudden becoming quite religious as we got onto an airplane in in, uh, Indonesia. And you've written about it. What drove you to to share this with uh, other travelers? Well, two things. Uh, I travel. I'm a journalist, so I travel all over the world for work and The more I travel, the more I see in, no matter where I go, in some of the oddest crevices and corners of the world, just uh, buses, uh, minivans, trains that are incredibly crowded, full of people. I mean, people standing on the rooftops, people hanging to the bumpers, the fenders. And in vast parts of the world, everywhere you go, both in city and rural areas, there are these huge quantities of people on the move. And uh, at the same time, I've been a long, uh, long-time aficionado of the so-called bus plunge story, which are the little fillers in the newspaper about, uh, hmm. you know, Peruvian bus plunges off cliff, 46 dead. Right. Uh, and those always seem sort of macabre and strange to me. And suddenly one day I was in the Congo and I, on a short flight from uh, Kinshasa to a place called Kikwit, and the f- flight was hot and full of flies and everybody was miserable and uh, it was dangerous. I mean, half the uh, airlines banned by the European Union are uh, Congolese airlines. And suddenly I thought, God, you know, it'd be so interesting to travel around the world, the whole world, on nothing but the worst buses, boats, trains, and planes. <laughs> and that's what you did. I, I looked at your map in your book, and it's just like, you did that? It would have been a lot easier to do this. No, you did it that way. And uh, you got some incredible stories to tell. I remember when I was uh, going to India, uh, my travel agent said, don't ride in the buses. You know, they're just... They're just so overwhelmingly crowded and everything. And, and I, I really thought, well, there's one reason to ride in the buses. Just don't be um, able to lose anything. I mean, get on there ready to have a mosh pit of humanity. And well, the bus would stop, and you would literally grab the railing, and you would hang onto the outside of the bus, and you'd know that like a box of cornflakes, when it jiggles, it'll settle. And the people sort of settle into the bus. Did, <laughs> did you yeah, have those kind it. of experiences? Well, I think of it like squeezing a watermelon seed between your thumb and forefinger. And, you know, you squeeze and the thing pops out. And, you know, we laugh, but actually it's incredibly, uh, the the commuter trains of Mumbai is uh, where I sort of use that uh, simile. 
Something like 20,000 people have been killed in the last uh, five years, and they're incredibly crowded and incredibly dangerous. And they're so crowded that people literally get squeezed and kind of ejected like that watermelon seed right out, out of the door and uh, get run over and trampled. And for huge numbers of uh, people from Mumbai, just their daily commute can take two or three hours each direction. And it's, you know, sort of a, a fight to the death. And it's dangerous. And it's not that the, the bus or the train will get in a wreck. It's just that people get pushed into tracks and people get squirted out. Is that the idea? I mean, the biggest, sort of the two biggest things, certainly in Mumbai, but on all these conveyances that make them uh, difficult are and dangerous are just the sheer numbers of people and lack of uh, maintenance in most cases. And then lack of maintenance is, is just because right. these are poor countries and they don't have a lot of money to spend on infrastructure. There's no taxes collected. Uh, there's, so there are no guardrails. Uh, policemen aren't paid much, so they take bribes. Drivers aren't paid much, so every person they can squeeze into a bus uh, is another fare. I mean, the the profit margins are so slim in these places. We're talking places where a driver might make 5 or $10 a day hmm. if he's lucky. So, you know, right. it's not craziness. It's just economics. It's, it's economic realities. I mean, you go down to some of the poor countries and you find huge populations living in previously uninhabitable ravines near the factory so they don't have to spend half their day's wages commuting on the bus or the train in and out of town from more affordable housing. And those who do commute are doing it on a shoestring and and they're not going to have the luxury of fancy and safe um, vehicles. I know in Central America, most of the city buses are discarded uh, school buses from American grade schools, aren't they? Yes, bluebird buses, uh, often known as chicken buses. It's just that when you travel, you can have that experience if you want. Another thing is aggressive people in the developing world. I mean, there's no polite waiting in line in a lot of these places. I remember getting literally run over by little grannies in in southern India. Yes, but I also, I mean, I think a big part of my book is really talking about the graciousness and generosity of people that I encounter in every single conveyance. I mean, I travel for five months on uh, some of the worst buses, boats, trains, and planes, and I never, you know, nothing was ever taken from me. I was never mm. robbed. I was never assaulted. I never got sick. Um, I was cared for and protected wherever I went. People fed me and watched my things and engaged with me and invited me to their homes. And the spirit of generosity of incredibly poor people who had very little to give was constant. Was there an awareness that you were an American on a, on a bus? Because they must have thought, what's he doing here? Most Americans will take an air-conditioned tour bus or fly over us, but you were right there on the bus with them. They must have been quite struck by that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people uh, have this great fantasy of America. I mean, they see American television movies all the time, and yet most people in the third world have very little contact with Americans. And I rode a ferry, for instance, from uh, Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, to um, Ambon in five days. The ferry itself was on a nine-day journey, and I just rode it in steerage. There were about 3,000 people stuffed into the bowels of this ferry, no uh, portholes, uh, no ventilation, just very, very hot still. And the generosity of people was so incredible in every step of the way and watching my things. And, hmm. you know, even in that kind of madness, uh, and the bathrooms were horrendous and almost unspeakable. I mean, the Indonesians would get up every morning and go into that hot, moist, kind of awful mm-hmm. place and emerge all sparkling clean and fresh-smelling. Hmm. It's a real dignity among poor people that you find when you travel, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You were talking about the statistical danger of these overcrowded ferries in the area around Indonesia. You mentioned, what, about 1,000 passengers die a year in the United States. There's been no fatalities, the equivalent kind of ferries. Until the ferry disaster in Staten Island a few years ago, I think it was from 1903 to 2007 or so, there were zero ferry passenger fatalities in the United States, and in Bangladesh, there are a thousand a year. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carl Hoffman, and Carl spent five months running all over the world on, on the most dangerous and crazy and cattle car kind of transportation, and he wrote a book sharing his experiences. His book is called The Lunatic Express. Carl's website is thelunaticexpress.com. 
Carl, I've always been fascinated uh, with the opportunity to go from Lima in Chile over the Andes and down into the Amazon. Tell us about that experience. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, something about travel agents uh, not recommending getting on the buses in India, so that was a good reason to do it. Uh, the guidebook I had said, uh, you know, whatever you do, don't go uh, from uh, Cusco in, uh, in the Andes into a place called Puerto Maldonado, which is in the Amazon. So, of course, I had to take that <laughs> route. <laughs> Get a good chapter out That's, of your book on that one, I bet, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, in, in life, I mean, it's not just writing for writing a book. I mean, you know, I think the best uh, times in life are when you stray, uh, take the back alleys and mm -hmm. side roads and disregard the, the guidebook. The main street. Um, right. So I uh, took a, a bus, and it was... Uh, it was actually kind of a beautiful ride. I mean, like so many of these things, you look at the bus, it has bald tires, and uh, you know, usually they're fairly swept clean in the, in the departing station. And uh, we left, and it wasn't even full, uh, and the road turned out to be paved, and, you know, no big deal at all. That was for about the first four hours. And then we kind of hit topped out in the Andes, and it's very, very high, I don't know, 13,000 feet or so, and uh, there's no trees, and suddenly we kind of just went over the over the top and started descending and the road ended and uh, the clouds uh, came and the rain started pouring down and the bus filled and we were on these very uh, precipitous uh, slippery dirt roads uh, slipping and sliding and fording rivers and we got stuck in a river and uh, there were you know I could literally reach my hand out the window we were probably two inches from the mountainside on one side and we went did that all through the night, and lightning, and the bus was leaking. And oh my goodness, I'd be man scared next to, death. to me had a little uh, boy, and he was uh, throwing up and urinating out the window, and uh, you know, on it went. <laughs> and yet, uh, happy travels. Uh, in the morning, in the morning, we came out of. I mean, I'd started in a mountain world, a dry, cold mountain world, and in the morning, we emerged in Puerto Maldonado. And it was uh, just hot, humid, wet uh, jungle and sort of brown earth and this very dynamic place, uh, a frontier town, people trying to uh, loggers and, and gold miners. And it felt sort of magical to arrive in that place, mm -hmm. a little bit like, uh, you know, you're kind of coming through the rabbit hole. And did you know before or after you made this trip that the World Health Organization rates Latin American roads as the most hazardous anywhere in the world with 1.2 million deaths a year? That's about 3,000 a day. Uh, I, I did know that. <laughs> you did know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you take these risks knowing. That's why I went. <laughs> that's why you went. Wow. That's a, that's a real danger there. And it puts things into perspective, doesn't it? And it, it lets you know what the reality is for, for people on this planet when they want to get from A to B. For most people, it's a, uh, I mean, it's easy for me to talk about it and sort of romanticize it a little bit. And, you know, I did it just because I could and mm -hmm. I thought it would be interesting. I mean, for most of the people I was traveling with, obviously, they just do it because they have to and they have no other choice. More with Carl Hoffman and the Lunatic Express in just a moment. Then we'll open our phones for your travel reports at 877-333-RICK. Eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. That's our phone number as we hop on the Lunatic Express with Carl Hoffman. And in just a bit, we'll take your calls about your travel discoveries. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Carl Hoffman. And Carl wrote a book called The Lunatic Express. And Carl traveled like a lunatic on the craziest transportation modes all over the world. 
took the risk, survived it. Rich stories to tell in this fascinating book. Carl, I think in the developing world, there are a lot of airlines that sort of rewrite the rules on uh, sanity. What's your experience with some crazy airlines from the developing world? Well, the most difficult things about airlines is that uh, looks are deceiving. And often time, you know, you get on an airplane and it can look old and uh, seats are ratty and but sometimes, even in third world places, you can get on airlines and they look quite good. I mean, if they're a relatively new airplane, um, they look shiny and everything. And you sort of imagine that uh, that because it looks shiny, it's safe. But what really counts for airplanes more than anything else is what you can't see, the maintenance and the air traffic control structure and all of those things. I mean, I took a flight, uh, TAM, Brazilian TAM airline flight, uh, from Porto Alegre to Sao Paulo, Brazil, that had crashed nine months earlier. The very same flight I took, uh, and it was a weird experience because I had the cockpit voice recording, the transcript, as the plane landed, and that's when uh, the one that crashed, the thrust reversers, one of them malfunctioned and the plane landed uh, fine, but uh, careened off the runway and killed 199 people. So I went through the virtually the same experience, except the plane came to a stop, and it was yeah. sort of weird to really put my mind in that airplane and and to wow. think about it and yet mm. in the end I you know we all check our watches and got off the plane and went to our meetings and hugged our loved ones and all those people hadn't I think it uh, made me think uh, more than anything in the airplanes I think that uh, you know anything can happen at any time and you just have no there's no way to prepare for it you can be on the crummiest airline in the world I mean I flew Ariane into Kabul and uh, you know the flight was basically fine yeah. but boom, something can happen. Carl, I was fascinated by your account of, uh, uh, what, a 100-degree hot train ride for 50 hours across Mali in Africa with no toilet. What was that like? Yeah, the train from Bamako, Mali to Dakar, Senegal, was notoriously bad, slow, dirty. Nobody knew when it left or exactly or when it arrived. And uh, when I finally climbed on it, uh, the seat, my seat assignment, the, the seat didn't exist. It was just destroyed. And I've never seen it. I mean, the train was just covered with dirt, and the windows were missing, and there were holes in its sides, and it was packed with people, and it was literally 100, 110 degrees, maybe 120 some days. But it was, uh, like so many of the experiences I had, it was uh, full of sort of joy. I mean, once I totally surrendered to the dirt, it was nothing you could do about it. I totally right. surrendered to the heat. And in the end, I just spent hours with my feet hanging out uh, of the doorway, um, being fed and, uh, you know, people giving me sweet tea and uh, cold beers and that, you know, some guy was selling out of ice chests and the mango seller had the bathroom full of mangoes so he couldn't use the bathroom that he was transporting. He spent four days a week on the train going he back He took over the bathroom to sell his mangoes? Well, he just stored them in the in the oh. bathroom. So the, the bathroom was full of crates of mangoes. There was no bathroom. I, Man. I, uh, now, when you stop in the middle of nowhere in a train like this, do people from the village come in and, and, and sell things to people? Yes. Um, one Food, every kind of food you can imagine. It's um, like a carnival. Chicken it's and, a constant carnival, uh, isn't it? Uh, constantly. And, you know, I just, once you sort of surrender to it all, and I ate whatever was available and uh, made traveling very easy. Do you get a little bit skeptical about seat assignments when you travel in the developing world? <laughs> what seat assignment? I know. And so many times I've walked onto a bus like civilized, last guy on knowing I've got 29A, and I get there and people just laugh you off. There's no seat assignments here. Sit in the, in the stairwell. You were the last guy on. Absolutely. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Carl Hoffman, and Carl has written a fascinating book called The Lunatic Express. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Sherry's on the line in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Sherry, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Hello, Rick and Carl. Hi, how are you? Oh, uh, good. Um, my travel isn't nearly as exciting or dangerous, but we were traveling along the north coast of Scotland a few years ago, and I convinced my husband that we should visit an island that had a lighthouse where supposedly they had lots of uh, puffins. So we got into a small motorboat along with six other people. It was undoubtedly overloaded, and the water was lapping just inches from the upper sides of the boat. And we arrived at the island, rode an ancient bus over a rutted road for 45 minutes, and finally reached the lighthouse. Well, unfortunately, there were not hordes of puffins. Um, in fact, we saw one, 
and it was dead. But then we got onto the bus, and the bus had to turn around to go back to the boat. And the driver got off, and we thought, well, what's happening? And he went under the bus, crawled under the bus with an iron rod, whacked it into reverse, <laughs> came back, got back in the bus. After turning around, had to repeat the maneuver and to whack it back to go forward. <laughs> and we got back to the boat. And, I mean, it's really a fun adventure to remember. And my husband loves to remind everyone that it was my idea to go out there <laughs> to, to the island. <laughs> In the end, it's those adventures that you remember the most. I mean, um, you know, the old saying, it's the, the destination is the journey, not the, uh, in, in your case, not the puffins, but the adventure going and coming back, and that's what stands out. Absolutely. It's a great story to tell, and uh, we did get to see puffins uh, at Dunnett's Head later in our, um, in our travels, so we weren't without puffins, but uh, he likes to remind people that it wasn't the puffin. <laughs> <got to> <laughs> Sherry, thanks for your call. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Carl Hoffman, and Carl wrote a book called The Lunatic Express, sharing his experience on the craziest, most dangerous, most vivid, most crowded modes of transportation all over this planet. And Carl, I was fascinated by your last chapter, Coming Home to America. Tell us how that uh, impacted you. Well, I flew from uh, Siberia, from Vladivostok into Los Angeles, and then uh, took the last leg from L.A. to D.C., where I lived uh, on Greyhound. And I travel a lot, and I'd come back home to America before a lot, and I always felt like arriving in America was sort of like arriving in Disney World. It was so shiny and clean and bright and sparkling. And this time, I didn't feel that at all. I got on that Greyhound in L.A. and uh, spent the 70 something hours and it was the one of the most well it was the most dismal leg of my whole trip without any doubt it wasn't because greyhound was so unclean or crowded but my fellow passengers were so i sort of felt like it was a bus full of lost souls i mean the the most common form of luggage were uh, plastic garbage bags and there were people uh, traveling with nothing but a six-pack of Coke, and uh, people barely spoke, and, of course, nobody invited me home, and nobody brushed their teeth or shampooed their hair, and there were no vendors with full of uh, fresh uh, grilled corn cobs or tamales coming in the bus. There was nothing but uh, Greyhound Steakhouses, uh, as they called them, which were McDonald's, and vending machines full of uh, Coke and Gatorade, and... Uh, America looked really, really bleak from the seat of a Greyhound bus for three days. Wow, what a powerful experience. What a poignant contrast. It reminds me, as I travel about the rich world and the poor world, when you're in the, in the poor world, you find that people operate from a mindset of abundance. And then when you go to the affluent world, so often you meet people who operate with a mindset of scarcity. And it just seems a little bit flip-flopped. And I think the lesson is we can learn a lot about the dignity and and beauty of life by talking with people who are really the poorest people on the planet from a material point of view. Yes, and they always were sharing their food and dressed perfectly and in crimson and saffron in India with bangles and, and shiny you know, shampooed hair in Indonesia and inviting me to their home in Bangladesh for lunch. And, you know, there was none of that. There was this sort of uh, despair, I felt, on Greyhound. And part of the problem is that uh, people traveling on Greyhound, I think, were the bottom rung economically in America. Carl Hoffman, author of The Lunatic Express, sum up the lessons that you learned from five months of this adventure you took to write this book in, in just a couple of sentences. The biggest thing, I think, is that it totally changed my ideas of affluence. In America, we tend to think of uh, being wealthy as uh, wealth of objects, of, of things, uh, houses, cars, boats, uh, whatever. After traveling in the, on the worst uh, conveyances for five months, I began to feel that affluence was uh, quiet and having space, uh, quiet, cleanliness, things that we totally take for granted and that most of the third world lacks on the one hand and the other that uh, we pay a great price for those things and that in the rest of the world the uh, people lack quiet, they lack space, they have no personal space at all but they are uh, constantly sleeping in a pile with family members and they know sort of where they belong and they feel very close to their communities and their families and I think that's what I felt like 
that was missing on Greyhound? Defining well-being in a context other than material. Absolutely. Interesting observations from Carl Hoffman. Carl, author of The Lunatic Express, thanks so much for taking this experience, taking careful notes, and sharing it so creatively with all of us other travelers here in the United States. Happy travels, Carl. Thank you so much. Let's open the phones now and switch gears just a bit, unlike that bus in Scotland. And we'll talk about some of the great travel discoveries you've made. We're at 877-333-RICK. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Marcus is on the line in Kirkland, Washington. Marcus, thanks for your call. Thank you. Yeah, Marcus, what's your favorite discovery that you've made that somebody might want to know about when they're dreaming about traveling? Uh, I just got back from Tanzania, and I was there for three weeks. I... I did a a climb of Mount Kilimanjaro and also a safari in the in the Serengeti and afterwards uh we went to Zanzibar which is a an island uh, resort and it, it was just a, a fabulous experience uh first of all I I've, I've never been to Africa and it was just great to see the people out there and and just to experience what it's like to be on the continent of Africa and then just climbing Mount Kilimanjaro was just a phenomenal experience and I I think it's a a great experience for just amateur climbers, uh, especially in the Northwest. I've I've climbed on uh, Mount Baker and, and a couple other mountains, and it's just it's a good climb. There's no technical uh, component to it. We're not roped in. There's actually a pretty nice trail, but the problem is it does go up to 19,000 feet above sea level. So it's just a beautiful mountain because you start at the bottom camp and you're just climbing, and, and the vegetation just continually changes. You're, you're in a jungle, then you're in a forest, then you're like in a, in a desert area, you're in a rocky area. It's just a beautiful um, transition. I would highly recommend uh, anyone who's, who's a climber to just go and experience that. And basically it's from the base camp or whatever, it's just a long uphill walk with a well-groomed exactly. trail. Exactly. It's, there's a very good trail there, so there's, there's really no technical demand. Uh, a lot mm. of a lot of people who are just amateur climbers, a lot of uh, older people, uh, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s are climbing it. There are teenagers climbing it. A lot of Europeans and, and Australians are on that trail. Not as many Americans, I don't think. Marcus, what's it like on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro? To be honest with you, I didn't get quite all the way up there. I, I went to um, right below Gilman's Peak. So when you're pretty far up there, you have to start at midnight and you're, you're climbing in the dark with your headlamp on. Oh, so it's a challenging a, hike then. Yeah, the summit day is, is actually pretty difficult. So you start at midnight. Uh, you have to go up with a guide. So no matter what, what you decide to do, there, there has to be a local guide. So I, I was paired with a local Tanzanian guide, and we climbed up, and the first ridge is called Gilman's Point, and that's about 18,500 uh, feet above sea level. And then, So I got to that point, but then... To get to the summit takes another two hours, and it goes to 19,000 feet. So I didn't quite get to the true... Now, you said, like, it's just a walk, but it's your 19,000 feet, or you were 18,500. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just uh, halfway up Mount Rainier, and I started feeling the lightness yeah. of the air and so on. Oh, yeah. What was it like well, up there was, for somebody who's not a, a serious mountain climber? So I was in a group of four people, and we, we did it in five days. And I, I would recommend definitely doing it maybe in seven days, and then... Also, some people take medications like Diamox to, to get up there. Right. So I would talk to your physician and, and consider that because it, it's not really the physical challenge. It, a lot of it's acclimatizing to, to that kind of altitude. And, and being from Seattle, I'm at sea level, and it's, it was really hard to do, to adapt. So I did Stairmaster to train for it. I actually climbed a lot of local mountains around, uh, like the I-90 corridor, like Tiger Mountain and in Mount Sai, and, and that was that was basically enough. I mean, I think physically uh, anyone can do it, but it's just getting used to that altitude. So you need to acclimate. Now take us down to sea level. You went out to uh, Zanzibar. Uh, what's the swimming like there in the Indian Ocean? 
Zanzibar is an undiscovered gem. It is a beautiful sea island uh, right next to the main continent of Africa, and I didn't see any Americans. It was very popular among like Europeans. It's just beautiful white beaches. The water was the Indian Ocean, so we went swimming in the turquoise water of the Indian Ocean. We saw giant turtles like swimming around. It was just phenomenal. I mean, it's I, I never heard of it before I went to Tanzania, and I'm just really happy that, that I went over there. Now, you went to these exotic places. I mean, think of the names, Kilimanjaro, Serengeti, Zanzibar. Now, right. you were an American. You're from the first world, going down to Tanzania. Did you feel comfortable on the streets with the people there, or was it like you're the, the rich guy from America, and everybody else is in <laughs> squalor, and people yeah. are asking for a dollar bill? Was it comfortable? Exactly. Yeah, I, I actually felt pretty comfortable, and uh, it is a third world country. So I've been to Egypt and some other, like in Ecuador and Peru. And and uh, when you are an American in these countries, you definitely are viewed as a very wealthy individual. And, and a lot of people do come up to you and they'll, they'll try to sell you things and they'll the last for dollar bills. So I had, I actually had a little, a lot of little gifts. I brought pens and and little toys. Like a lot of kids will come up to you, and we, we would just give away little gifts to mm-hmm. the kids. So it was, it was good. And, and they're very friendly people. Um, they all try to speak English with you. A lot of them are pretty fluent in, in English. I've met so many and, people uh, who are just so charmed by Tanzania. It just sounds like a beautiful place in in so many ways. Marcus, we got to move yeah. along. Thanks for your call. Sure. Okay. okay. Happy Have travels. A good day. Bye. Ali in Keene, New Hampshire, emails us and writes, I was in Mischkoltz, Hungary last year and loved the city. They have this fabulous thermal bath complex in the Tapolka suburb, and it was so much fun. It was a labyrinth of tunnels you swim through. Prices go down after 4 p.m. She loved Mischkoltz, and that's M-I-S-K-O-L-C. No tourists, no pickpockets, no dishonest taxi cab drivers. It was prettier than Egger. Next time, Ali says, I'll skip Egger, and just stay in Mischkoltz. I haven't been to Mischkoltz. I've been to Eger, and it's wonderful, and if this place is better than Eger, that's worth taking notes. Mischkoltz, M-I-S-K-O-L-C, in the countryside of Hungary. Yes, More of your travel discoveries are just ahead at 877-333-RICK. We're conquering our fears of the unknown and getting rewarded with the fun and the beauty our world has to offer. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Zovem se Marijan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem sa Rikom Stevesom. So that was Croatian. My name is Marijan Krišković. I come from the wonderful Croatian Mediterranean coast and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Once again in Croatian, zovem se Marijan Krišković i dolazim sa predivne hrvatske sredozemne obale i putujem s Rikom Stevesom. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, our listeners are inspiring us to see new places with reports of their own travel discoveries at 877-333-7425. And Megan's on the line in Boston, Massachusetts. Megan, got some thoughts on Mexico? Yeah, I actually uh, visited for Day of the Dead and had a wonderful time. It was great. Oh, tell us about that, the Day of the Dead. It sounds like it's one of the most exciting and colorful times to be south of the border. Yeah, definitely time when people uh, bring out some great food. I ate a lot of chocolate uh, since I went to Oaxaca for the actual celebration day. And they're definitely known for their chocolate, so I got to see some chocolate-making process. And I took a cooking class on um, how to make mole. Wow. Tell us about that. Uh, well, it was a great deal. I actually ended up being one of just uh, three people who signed up for the class. And so it was like very, very personal. Uh, it was so cheap, I felt like I was stealing. I only paid... Um, 20 U.S. dollars for the hmm. whole class. And it took three hours and had a wonderful meal at the end of it. Wow, that's great. And now you uh, come home and you can do a better mole? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little challenging to find all the ingredients, but I found some really great uh, Mexican stores, got to know the shop owners in my neighborhood, and uh, I've, gotten, I've gotten close. Uh, not, not perfect, but close. What reading would you recommend for people who are planning a trip to Mexico? Well, I, I read uh, the book Mexico, A Love Story, before I left. 
and and really really loved it. It's a bunch of uh, women who write about their experiences in Mexico, and was really inspirational. How was it inspirational? Um, well, it was neat that it just took a lot of different perspectives, um, and all the women. I mean, of course, they're they're all travel writers, and so they go out of their way. I think maybe to have just amazing experiences. So make sure that they're talking and interacting with the locals and just getting as much out of their travel as they can. And so that was helpful in me and getting out of my bubble and making sure I get all I can out of the experience of traveling. That's what distinguishes a good trip, isn't it? Meeting the local people. Yes, for sure. So this book was called Mexico, A Love Story. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection of stories written by women traveling in Mexico. Uh, Why would it be helpful for women as opposed to men? Um, well, I think especially traveling in Mexico, you know, there is the whole machismo uh, kind of thing going. Um, and so I think it was useful to hear from a women's perspective how women are treated and how other women you get to interact with while you're there. Now, you were in Oaxaca, right? I was all over, but I spent the other day in Oaxaca. Now, I've never been um, a woman in Mexico, so I have no idea <laughs> what, what that's like. But just get us up to date on that macho, you know, Latin man thing. What is it like, and is it... Is it something that women, American women, can moderate by how they present themselves? I think you can use the same smarts they use in American cities, and that there's neighborhoods you should go to by yourself, and there's neighborhoods you shouldn't, of course. Um, but I thought it made it even easier to meet people because guys are just so willing to talk with you. And so one of my favorite experiences, I actually uh, was there during the World Series as well, and I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I ended up watching the game in a bar with a bunch of guys who barely spoke any English. I speak very little Spanish, uh, but it was still a really great time, all ages. You know, 80-year-old men trying to make bets with me on who was going to win the game. So it was a lot of fun, and, and it was in a safe neighborhood. So. And Megan, you're saying you had an advantage down there because you were a woman and because the local guys hustle women. Uh, that sounds a little strange if you put it that way. But, well, I know, uh, but I mean, this is the funny thing, because <laughs> I can't say that, because it, it sounds like I don't, I'm not sensitive to the issue. And of course, there's horrible things about the way a lot of women are treated in a lot of countries. But you can put a positive spin on it if you're a good traveler and make it a real plus, because you get a lot of attention, and everybody wants to talk to you, and you can do it in yes. a way that doesn't put you in a vulnerable situation. Is that right? probably the best way to put it. I can't do this because I'm a man, but I would like you to encourage women to go down to Mexico, be smart, flaunt whatever excites the men about you, and uh, have a lot of friends. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And uh, so you go to a bar. What a great idea. You're watching the uh, the World Series down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And do people approach you? Do you people buy you drinks? Uh, what do you do? I had to fight off the drinks. You had what? A, <laughs> I had to fight off the drinks. There were so many people who <laughs> buy drinks. I've never had um, that experience. I've never had to fight off the drinks. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it was great because they, they don't really follow baseball, and so they wanted to know everything about, you know, Philadelphia and New York. They had a lot of preconceptions about New York, you know. So they had preconceptions um, so they, about they New York? They had a lot of questions. We had to talk about it. We, we actually didn't really watch the game that much. They probably had preconceptions about New York, about baseball, and about American women. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> so this is like Education America 101, and it's probably confusing mm-hmm. to them because a woman is not supposed to be a sports aficionado, probably in their macho male mindset. I, I can imagine, yeah. So you confused those people, and you left them with a, a lot of fun memories, and you gained a lot of fun memories yourself. Yep, and I lost a few bets, too. And you learned how to cook mole. Yep. For 20 bucks? This is true, yeah. Because <laughs> cooking school costs an arm and a leg when you go in Europe. So you go down to Mexico and you learn how to cook Mexican for, for peanuts. Yeah, and the, the cooking school to me, it was, it was uh, <laughs> part of a hostel, the Don Pablo Hostel. And then I also uh, went horseback riding for $12 for three hours. That sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like you knew how to have a good time. I definitely do, especially on a budget. Okay, so women read Mexico, a love story. So you get a lot of other women's experiences down in Mexico. And then stay safe and make a lot of friends. Good summary. Come home with money in the bank for next summer's trip. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) All right, Megan, thanks. That's an inspiration. Thank you, Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Paul's on the line in Boston Spa, New York. Paul, thanks for your call. Hi. I've reached that point in life where I can get some free flights out of the military. You retire, fly, space, A, and one of the places I want to head for is Aviano, which is not too far from Naples. And here's what I'd like to travel with, a credit card, a motorcycle, and a camera. 
and uh, some wanderlust and get out there and meet some of the people. Amazing. You park a motorcycle and how many people will come along and talk to you. And so, there I am. Let's pretend I'm in Aviano. What are some recommendations to head from that northeast corner of uh, Italy right near Venice? Okay, Paul, first of all, you said not, not very far from Naples. and uh, I'm sorry. That's but you, you meant Venice, I think, right? Venice, absolutely. Well, that's right. Maybe you yep. were, did you have a military time in Naples? Oh, yes. You, were you stationed in Naples? Yes, I was. Ah, really? Because I was... Right at Cappadocino. Yeah. One of the most beautiful places in the world is the Amalfi Coast. Everybody should see that before. Yeah. Me. I always thought those guys stationed in Naples had a nice, uh, nice situation there. Yes, they do. Right. Okay, but back up to uh, Venice. And north of Venice, yes. there's a place called Aviano, which is a big uh, U.S. air base, right? Or a NATO air base? Yeah, or what's it? Yes, it is. Now, that's uh, right in a region called Friuli. Friuli has its charms, but you know, when you're in the area north of Venice, you got two directions you can go. You can go west, and then you get into the Dolomite, the Dolomites. That's Alberto Tomba country. That's the ski resorts, Cortina, ah. and so on. And I love traveling around in there, and I've looked a lot in that area for the best place to stop for my guidebook purposes. And there's a place called Castle Ruth or Kessel Roto. Remember, in that part of Italy, it's bilingual, so all the maps have names in two languages. Places are called to the German name and the Italian name because the people want to speak German and the government wants them to speak Italian. So Vipatino is also Sterzing, and uh, Kessel Ruth is also Kessel Roto, and Bozin is also Bolzano. So uh, the whole region is called Alto Adige if you are Italian, or Sud Tyrol if you're German-speaking. Now, from that northern base you're talking about, you can enjoy the incredible, dramatic, limestone, craggy, distinct peaks of the Dolomites. You can find the highest alpine meadow anywhere in Europe. It's called the Alpi di Susi, and it would be wonderful to motorbike through those mountain passes. We've taken our tour buses when we drive from Innsbruck down to Venice off of the motorway and up into the mountains just to enjoy the beautiful scenic drives around the Sella Pass. S-E-L-L-A Pass is uh, the most dramatic, I think. Now, Paul, you can also add a little adventure to your trip by heading east from that area north of Venice and cross the border and go into Slovenia. And uh, within a couple oh. hours' drive, you're in Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia. They've got the Julian Alps there. The Julian Alps are the least known and, and appreciated part of the Alps. And there are alpine resorts and, and uh, beautiful places to, to motorbike and so on all across Slovenia. Great suggestions. All right. You got a good angle there. I mean, Europeans love to gather around a guy on a motorcycle. And if you're approachable and you, know, uh, and you go to the places where you are accessible, you can make a lot of friends with that little gimmick. Yes, you do. And I've even had that work for me down in New Zealand. Kids gather around and you yeah. get some great pictures. Very cool. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you for all the information. Good luck on your travels, Paul. Bye. And Jeff's on the line in Easton, Maryland. Jeff, thanks for your call. Thank you. Thoughts on enjoying culture as you travel? Yes. Um, I had recently discovered a book by... Um, Graham Robb, which you may be familiar with, called The Discovery of France. Hmm. It's a cultural history from the revolution to the First World War, but the interesting thing is the picture that it draws of the diversity of culture and language and traditions that existed across France pretty much up until the First World War. In other words, it was more diverse until the First World War? Oh, it was incredibly diverse. I had no idea how fragmented France was outside of Paris. And Rob, who I believe is a professor at Oxford, had written this book as a result of traveling by bicycle for 14 or 15,000 miles around France over about a six-year period because he felt that that was the best way to really connect with the, uh, the people and the terrain and the history just the way that he did his research is fascinating. Hmm. But the information that he found was um, a number of things that I, I just had absolutely no idea about. He starts the book talking about the early French map makers in the early 1700s and the hostility that they encountered when they went to some of the little outlying villages around the country what he points out, they actually risked life and limb to collect this um, survey data for the maps. 
because the individuals in the little communities felt any outside interference was perceived as an evil intrusion. They didn't really want outsiders to know where they were, what their resources were like, how to get there. Well, they were probably threatened by the central government. They felt they were threatened by the central government because it opened them up to uh, both invasion and commercial competition. Taxation. Yeah. And being enlisted into the military, probably, too. Right. Wow. To make a map, it was, it was actually physically dangerous to, to go around and try to map well, out the country. The earliest map maker uh, that they describe was actually killed by the townspeople. Oh, yeah. You don't let a map maker come into my neighborhood. Right, right. So you're talking about a book called The Discovery of France by Graham Robb, R-O-B-B. Now, you say you were impressed by, or he was impressed by, the diversity within France uh, before World War I. Right. But even when I think today, Jeff, when I think about France, I think it's one of the most diverse countries in Europe because you've got Alsace, which is Germanic. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, the whole Côte d'Azur, which is quite Italian. Right. You've got uh, Brittany, which is Celtic. It's related to the Welsh and the Scots and the Mm -hmm. Irish. And then you've got uh, Basque country. Right. And uh, right there you've got like five different countries within France. And there's a lot more local pride and so on. But you're saying it was even more distinct a hundred years ago? It was more distinct than that because uh, he would describe situations in which individuals living in a small rural community might in their entire life not have traveled three or four miles out of town. Wow. And if they did they couldn't communicate with the neighboring Mm. town that might be five or ten miles away because the dialects were so different. Now, I've noticed that in my sightseeing even today, that the grandparents' generation had all of these strong dialects within France, and there's six or eight very strong dialects that Mm -hmm. conceivably people couldn't understand each other very well. And I would imagine that's changed a lot in the last generation with mass media and everything, and a hundred years ago it was even much, much more pronounced. Right, and I, I think the 100 years ago is a, is a pretty good marker because um, some of the recruits to the French military prior to the First World War, when they arrived in Paris, the communities that they came from provided a translator since they could not speak French. Hmm. And I, I think, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I think he, uh, Rob mentions that in uh, 1880, only 11% of the population of France outside of Greater Paris spoke French. Is that right? And French was the language of the courts in Europe. Right. Obviously, part of that was, as you point out, at least the five major regions where... Um, different languages. Different languages. Right. I remember we traveled a couple of years ago in the Dordogne area and seeing the caves, and it was described to us by tour guides as uh, people had lived in some of these cave and cliff dwellings, but my impression was that they'd lived there several hundred years ago, at least out in the the rural areas. Right. But according to Rob, they lived there up until the First World War. Oh, yeah. And I had no sense of that from anything I'd ever read or been told. You know, the diversity of Europe just never ceases to surprise me and others when you learn more about it. I know as a tour guide, it's kind of um, a challenge to remind people that in 1850, There was no Germany, and there was no Italy, and like you said, French was the minority language in France. Mm -hmm. Uh, Germany must have had 30 different countries in it. Italy probably had uh, 15 different countries, and against a lot of people's interests, these, you know, big-minded Italophiles or or German visionaries put together these big political units, but there's still a lot of local pride, and now when Europe is uniting, we see the need for the free trade, and you can can move everywhere with the same coins and no passports and so on, but at the same time, Brussels is really celebrating the cultural diversity, so these small languages that are scattered all over Europe and pretty much... um, unappreciated, are actually more widely spoken now than they were a generation ago, which is quite an impressive accomplishment when you consider the onslaught of the big languages with the modern media and the Internet. That's true. And you you mentioned uh, tour guides and and tours and the work you've done. Uh, I was surprised to read that there were guidebooks in the 18th and 19th century, but in France they were of almost no use. Rob made the comment that many writers um, never expected anyone to follow their directions. <laughs> and so they painted pictures of imaginary provincial towns. In the guidebooks? In the guidebooks. So they wrote the guidebooks for vicarious travelers? Exactly. Oh, Just and then the somebody... kind of thing we're talking about, the armchair traveler. Wow, that's what I try not to do. 
Yeah, and when you actually tried to follow their directions, it was useless. Completely fanciful. Right. On the other hand, in the 18th and 19th century, there was just basically one kind of real, quote, tourism, and that was the aristocratic grand tour, and it was sort of in vogue for the noble families to send their their sons and daughters abroad with a big traveling chest and Uh and an entourage, and they could do all these highly cultured things and then come home. But that would be one sort of strata of Europe, and it would probably be oblivious to a lot of the more rustic ethnic little corners that you'd be talking about with Rob's book there. Yeah. And I was surprised to learn the original Tour de France was an itinerary followed by apprentices for centuries, a four- or five-year traveling organized by the trade guilds that sent masons and bakers and carpenters on what amounted to a 1,400-mile journey. Around France. Around France to towns where they learned under local artisans what the local techniques were for working with local materials and resources. The beauty of this book is it's full of material like that, that if you were traveling to France, in order to, I would think, in order to really appreciate the culture and the people, particularly if you're outside of Paris, um, this would be an extremely helpful read. In so many cases, the more information you bring into a country, the more you'll get out of that country in your travels. And uh, this book sounds like it helps you really connect with the, um, with the complexity of, oh, it is. Uh, of, that, yeah. of that challenging country to a lot of Americans. So, good advice. Right. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much. Bye now. Bye now. That's uh, Jeff from Easton, Maryland, recommending Graham Robb's book, The Discovery of France. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We had help this week from Sarah McCormick and from National Public Radio in Washington. Listen again online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.